0: and 365 day returns. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and our connection to our own humanity. This is episode 77, another joint episode with Melita of Tudor Times on John Knox. Just a quick note that the Renaissance English History Podcast is a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. You can learn more about our network at agorapodcastnetwork.com. And the Agora Podcast of the month is When Diplomacy Fails. He's got some really special projects going on now celebrating his five-year anniversary. So go check that out. Remember, you can get all the links to more information, resources, and sign up for the super awesome mailing list with extra mini casts, free e-courses, stuff like that at englandcast.com. So now let me introduce you to Melita Thomas. Melita is a co-founder and editor of Tudor Times, a website devoted to Tudor and Stuart history in the period from 1485 to 1625. You can find it at tutortimes.co.uk. Melita, who has always been fascinated by history ever since she saw the 1970s series Elizabeth R. with Glinda Jackson, also contributes articles to BBC History Extra and Britain Magazine. We started with her going right in to who John Knox is and the history of his life. And then we get into talking about his relationship to women, which is what I know him for. But let's not judge. Let's just start right with his history of his life.
1: And you have to remember that Scotland, in the years after he was born, was still absolutely shell-shocked from the Battle of Flodden. And there was a huge amount of political infighting and unrest during the reign of James V. And there was a a pro-English party, a pro-French party. The the politics of the whole of his life really were efforts of both England England and France to control Scotland. He was the son of a merchant. Nobody really knows much about his his mother's background or his father's family. He had the usual education of a merchant's son, went to the local church school, went to the grammar school, went to the University of St. Andrews, and he became a Catholic priest, which probably most people don't think of Knox, but that he was actually a Catholic priest. Wow. And You've just like, blown my mind. <laughs> yeah, but like most you know that was the career for anybody who you know wasn't wasn't going to be a merchant because his, his brother would have taken over from his father so anybody who was academic or wanted a you know an office job effectively uh, because you couldn't really do anything else if you weren't a priest I mm. mean you could be a lawyer but but you know the the church and state were very closely interlinked so he became a priest and he became a, a notary public Which is an office that still exists today. Uh, You're taking oaths and you're witnessing signatures and so forth. But that was essentially a church job, not a, you know, there was no official state post. So that's what he did. And he continued living quietly, being a notary until he was about 30. And then he heard some preachers. Preaching reform, as was you know, becoming widespread in southern Scotland in the early 1540s. And the two chaps he heard, there were a couple of Dominican friars who had you know moving along the path to reform, because you know the early reformers, of course all started out as Catholics, but they all moved along a, a path to a different interpretation of religion. And some of them went further and some of them came back. But, you, you know, you couldn't really easily say somebody was a Catholic or a Protestant at, at this point. People were moving around in a on a continuum. Mm-hmm. So Knox heard these two and then he heard the most probably one of the other most influential man in Scotland on the Reformation, a chap called George Wishart. Mm-hmm. And I think I've pronounced that correctly, Wishart. Okay. And George Wishart was apparently an extremely charismatic preacher, and he was preaching the um, uh, doctrines of reform, and particularly those which had found favour in Switzerland with um, Bullinger and uh, Calvin, mm. which was a more, a more radical form of Protestantism than the English were dabbling with. Mm-hmm. So Wishart, uh, when when Knox heard him, he he literally did what they said in the Bible, and he left his home and he left his job, and he followed Wishart. Not for very long, because Wishart was um, arrested, handed over to Cardinal Beaton, who was the um, Scottish Scottish cardinal, but he was also a rival with the Governor Aaron for the regency of Mary Queen of Scots. So again, there was a lot of political infighting as well as the religious. Element to it. So Wishart was burnt. Mm-hmm. Uh, some some authorities say he was um, strangled before he was burnt, but others others said he was burnt. But you know, whichever it was, it was you know dreadful. Mm-hmm. But Wishart had a number of followers, and they laid a plot to assassinate Cardinal Beaton, probably with English help, or almost certainly with English help. Although the English government couldn't openly be seen to be assassinating um, people from other countries, but they, they were involved. This group assassinated Beaton and took over his castle at St. Andrews. And Knox, for, it seems rather odd from our perspective, but Knox, who was by now a tutor to um, some sons of other men interested in reform, took his pupils and joined the group who were besieged in the castle of St. Andrews. Mm. So after Beaton had been assassinated, Aaron sent a force to try to you know, recapture the castle. It was all a bit half-hearted. And this group of reformers, including Knox, were in the castle of St. Andrews for um, getting on for two years. And they were called the Castilians. And rather oddly, they seemed to have a good deal of freedom to come and go within the city and town of St. Andrews. Mm -hmm. And Knox began to gain a reputation amongst the Castilians themselves as a preacher. And they decided that he ought to spread his wings and start preaching in the local church. Mm-hmm. Now He was initially rather rather shy about the whole thing, which is difficult to imagine. But mm. he said, no, no, he, he, he couldn't do that. He wasn't sure that God had called him to, to be a, a minister. Mm. And it was very important amongst the reformers that ministers were chosen by the people rather than priests of the Catholic Church who were effectively imposed from above. Okay. in a sense so it was it was really important that the congregation called the minister Okay. so the Castilian congregation in the castle and also in the local church called Knox to preach and he realized that this was God's voice and he got up in the pulpit and he never looked back wow. um, he said that you know when he was preaching it was God's voice working through him he didn't I mean obviously he prepared to a point but he was one of those people who could just get up and speak and he was enormously charismatic and effective and you know whether you like the message or you don't he breathed new life into christianity in in scotland which like much of the much of europe at the time was you know the the, the church was corrupt there was a, a lot of feeling that all they cared about them all the priests cared about was you know worldly power and government and and you know they weren't looking after their flock mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Knox felt it and he believed it. And, you know, people were converted when they listened to him. He was very, very powerful. So after a while, the, um, you know, the whole political scene changed and the uh, French acting for the new regent, Mary of Guise, I've simplified a bit, but, you you know, the (laughs) complication. So the French took a hand and they helped capture the castle of St. Andrews and Knox And his fellow Castilians were put into the French galleys as galley slaves. In fact, their physical treatment was not much worse than if you were just an ordinary sailor on on, on a ship, but you couldn't leave. So he was he was stuck as a galley slave and he endured that for about 18 months. Yes, it's it ruined his health because obviously the food wasn't brilliant, and um you know his digestion suffered ever after. But clearly he was a man of enormous physical endurance as well. And towards well, towards the end of the sixth, eighteen months or about eighteen months after he'd been captured, there was a change of government in England. Henry the Eighth died, and the new government of Edward the was very much more Protestant in its outlook. So Henry had broken with the Roman Catholic hierarchy but religion in England had stayed much the same, but now it moved into a much more Protestant vein. And the government of England asked the government of France to release the galley slaves as part of negotiations between England and France. So Knox was released and he was given a license to preach in England, moved to England and began preaching in, first in Berwick and then in Newcastle. And he built up quite a following. He became engaged to a lady named Marjorie Bowes, her mother, Elizabeth, uh, was one of Knox's closest friends for the rest of their lives. Marjorie's father disapproved, but um, he eventually agreed to them being betrothed, but they weren't married at this point. Knox then started preaching in front of Edward VI and the court, but he was in conflict with Cranmer, who was less radical, and there was a huge row about the prayer book of 1552. Uh, Knox wanted it to be made Well, Knox didn't want people to kneel to take communion and Cranmer did. And Cranmer was very angry that Knox had tried to undermine it. And he insisted that kneeling stayed, but they added in a little paragraph called the black rubric, which emphasised that kneeling was a sign of respect. It wasn't anything to do with the Catholic interpretation of the communion. But Knox, although lots of people admired him, he was, found, he was felt to be rather troublesome. And the Duke of Northumberland, having offered him the bishopric of Rochester and been refused, um, sort of washed his hands of him, saying that he was neither grateful nor pleasurable, i.e. pleased. So Knox went back to the north and, to, and continued preaching in, in uh, Newcastle and Berwick. Then he was on a preaching tour in Buckinghamshire when Edward died and Mary became queen uh he knew that he would be deeply unpopular under mary and he and a number of the more radical protestants left the country and he went to various places but he ended up first in geneva uh where he you know met with calvin and the other leaders of the of the swiss and french reformations and it was whilst he was there that he began wondering about whether women could or should be rulers and he was concerned that the Bible did not permit women to be rulers. Uh, Calvin and Bollinger and Beza, the other reformers that he asked, they were they were a great deal more circumspect and said, well, you know, really, it's, it depends on the laws of the country and it really isn't anything to do with them. And they didn't want to get involved in politics. It was a, you know, it was a very serious thing in the 16th century to question a monarch's right to rule, and most of the reformers wanted to steer clear of the whole idea. But Knox, it, it started to—you know—he was thinking about it in the back of his mind for for some time after that. He then went to Frankfurt, where he was called to be the minister to the English congregation in Frankfurt, and became embroiled in what they called the Frankfurt um, the Frankfurt conflict or the conflict between the Noxians and the Coxians, Mm. which is a fun way to remember it. But again, it was all about... The the prayer book uh, of the English prayer book, should that be used in Frankfurt or should they use the more radical uh, prayer book that the French group in Frankfurt were using? And, you know, there was all the usual infighting of committees and everybody wanting their own way and, you know, general disagreements. Uh, Eventually, they smoothed the matter over and Knox uh, stayed preaching in, in Frankfurt for a while. Then the whole thing flared up again and he left and went to Geneva. In the meantime, back in Scotland, the Protestant movement was increasing, uh, some of the senior nobles had converted, uh, particularly uh, Lord James Stuart, who was the half-brother of Queen Mary of Scotland, and Queen Mary of Scotland was living in France. She was still a, still a young woman, uh, just a girl, so he, her brother, her half-brother was back in Scotland, her mother was acting as regent, and Mary of Scotland was, was in France. But uh, Lord James and his colleagues uh, asked Knox to visit Scotland, which he did. And in that period, again, he was an enormously successful preacher, lots of conversions. So, so But then he, return, he returned to Geneva. And whilst he was there, he became more and more distressed at the persecution in England because under Queen Mary of England, there was a quite vigorous persecution of Protestants. Now, we have to accept that Knox wasn't against persecution in principle. Mm-hmm. He just didn't like the persecution of people he believed he he agreed with. Um, you know, he was perfectly happy to rant against Catholics and suggest that they should be executed for idolatry. But he was very unhappy about the, um, the persecution against the godly, as he saw it. So there were persecutors on both sides. But the, the persecution in England was very disturbing for him and his, his congregation. And it fed into his fears about female rule generally. So the the regent in Scotland, Marie of Guise, although she was uh, tolerant and not interested in any kind of persecution, he felt that she wasn't really going far enough in introducing Protestantism in Scotland. And Mary of England was, um, you know, fairly vigorously clamping down on Protestants. So he wrote his marvellous, marvellously entitled First Blast Against the Monstrous Regiment of <laughs> it's it's hard to it's hard to imagine but actually Knox had an awful lot of women friends he was one of those charismatic types who what should we say? Emotionally needy people tended to latch onto. So he did spend a good deal of his time writing letters of comfort and affection to his his flock, many of whom were were women. Mm-hmm. He was very attached to his wife and to his children. So he wasn't, you know, he wasn't somebody who hated women per se, or had any, you know, it, it wasn't just a, a sort of a, a blanket hatred of women. It was the ideas of his own time, which thought that women were inferior because God had made them to, you know, inferior to men, and that therefore it was wrong for a woman to be a ruler. He always claimed that the first blast was aimed at Mary of England, and he wasn't really um, complaining about other women in general. But Mm -hmm. funnily enough, they didn't really like that. And um, he timed his first blast very unfortunately, because uh, Mary of England died to be replaced with her half-sister Elizabeth. Mm. and Knox and thought that he would race back to England uh, take up his duties again in Berwick and Newcastle and perhaps you know spend some time in Scotland but Elizabeth wouldn't let him anywhere near England Mm. she couldn't stand him couldn't stand any of his friends or his ideas and the the Marian exiles were not were were more radical than Elizabeth and quite a few of them who went back to England didn't get very far under Elizabeth Um, she was much more traditional in her in her religion so Knox returned to Scotland and he was part of the Protestants in a conflict that became known as the Wars of the Congregation where the Protestant lords wanted to implement the reformed faith and because Mary of Guise would not agree, They deposed her as regent and introduced the reformed faith into um, Parliament in Scotland in 1560. And Knox was uh, a major player in the wars of the congregation. He was the army chaplain. He wrote the, with others, but he wrote the confession of faith that became the, the doctrine that the Parliament of 1560 implemented. All was going swimmingly. And then Marie of Guise died and her daughter, Mary of Scotland, Queen Mary, Mary, Queen of Scots, having been widowed in France, decided to come back to Scotland. Now, she had agreed with her half brother, Lord James, that uh, she wouldn't interfere with the um, Reformation, that provided she personally could be allowed to continue with her Catholic faith, she would not try to overturn the, the Reformation which you might have thought would be everybody would be happy with. But Knox fundamentally did not believe that Mary would keep her word. He was absolutely certain that Mary would, like her cousin Mary of England, introduce French troops and reimpose Catholicism by force. No matter what Mary did or said, Knox was convinced that this was the case. So you know she could not do anything right. So when when she came to Scotland, she uh, made an attempt to be on good terms with Knox. She invited him to, to 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 call on her. And you know when you think, although we don't think like this now, he was just a, a a minister in a in a church parish in Edinburgh, and she was the Queen of Scotland and the Dowager Queen of France. So the the social gulf between them was enormous and but Knox appeared to pay absolutely no attention to the social conventions of his time and he spoke to Mary you know like he'd speak to an errant schoolgirl, and you know which Mary found quite difficult to to cope with and she was only uh, she was only 18 or 20 she was 18 I think when she came back to Scotland so she was a young woman widowed in a country that had changed out of all recognition since she'd left it at the age of five. And then there was this man haranguing her. Um, and no matter what she did, you know, he he, he, he criticised her. He criticised her dancing. He criticised her friends. He criticised whatever she did. He, he became, Knox became more concerned as time passed because Mary actually was quite, quite a clever politician. And, you know, had she been older and more experienced, things might have worked out rather differently. And then she made Rather a bad move when she married a second time because her second husband, Darnley, although he was a very good choice on paper, he was an absolute nightmare in in the flesh. And Knox immediately disapproved of him just on principle because although Darnley was um, hardly a man of religion, he was nominally Catholic. Darnley went to hear Knox preach and Knox took the opportunity to uh, tell his audience that um, countries that God wished to punish were given boys and women as rulers. So again, likely to appeal to the new king, but uh, you know, in, in his Estimate of Darnley's character—he was—he was pretty much spot on, and the marriage went disastrously wrong. Knox was certainly aware of, if not involved in, the murder of uh, David Richer, Mary's secretary, because all of the Protestant lords knew about it, and half of them were actually present, including Darnley. Then, you know, matters went from bad to worse. Uh, Darnley himself was assassinated, and Knox. Was absolutely convinced that Mary was behind it. I mean, you know, no, nobody really knows. Um, my feeling, I think, would be that she knew, but wasn't. It wasn't her idea, but she she knew something was going on. But. Uh, I, I don't think you could reasonably say she was actually a party to it, but I think she'd have. I think she chose not to know. In the same way that um, Murray, uh, her brother Lord James, now the Earl of Murray, he he chose not to know. They, they they were both pretty aware that something was going on, but in fact, of course, it all backfired, and Mary Mary got got the blame. And Knox, you know, he preached against her as a murderess and an idolatress and a scarlet woman, and inflamed the population. Mary was um, defeated at the Battle of Langside, uh, escaped to England, and over the next few years, the, the late 1660s and the early 1570s, Knox was strongly of the party that Uh, wanted to keep Mary out of the country or ideally have her sent back to be executed. It was tantamount to civil war in in Scotland between the King's Party and the Queen's Party. So the King's Party was led by Murray, and Knox was a prominent member of it. And the Queen's Party was led, in fact, by some of Knox's old friends, uh, which upset him hugely because he was worried that they would be um, damned for for their support of, of the Queen. So you know moving away from politics in the fifteen sixties uh he lost his wife young uh he was very, very upset about that. They had two sons um and he and she was you know a great companion and a help to him uh then he rather some of the shine fell off him when he married a second time to a girl of seventeen when he was uh in his fifties. And people were just as um, just as likely to raise eyebrows about men in their fifties marrying girls of seventeen in, in in that time as they are now. So there you go. Uh, they had he had three he had three children by his second wife of whom he does seem to have been very fond and and her she she was attached to him as well. Or he was a friend of her father, so perhaps um, you know. I, I mean, there's nothing to suggest that the girl was was forced into it. Um, so I've got to give that impression. And she also, like his first wife, became a great help to him in his ministry, writing letters. And, you know, she was a very educated uh, Protestant herself. So um, it wasn't all um, what we might think. There, his health began to deteriorate. So he still preached to vast crowds, um, but he had a couple of strokes. And yeah, so, so he sort of faded away in the, in the early 1570s. Um, but he was still enormously influential in every, every time he preached. He died in 1572, and it was—it really was the—you the, the, know—the passing of an era with, with him gone. But his influence over the next generation of Scottish ministers was huge. He he spent some time in St Andrews, you know, training the 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 new breed of Scottish minister. And it was his his support in the wars of the congregation, his ability to preach, his his single-mindedness. So Knox was um, distressed to discover that the Protestant lords were no more interested in the uh, the general welfare of people than, uh, than the papists had been. To quote, they appeared to take no more care of the instruction of the ignorant and the feeding of the flock of Jesus Christ than ever did the papists. Because, as Marie of Guise had long suspected back in the in the 1540s and early fi- and 1550s, the Protestant lords wanted to get their hands on the church's wealth far more than they wanted to reform religion. I'm sure not all of them, and you know you can't make too many sweeping statements. But they weren't all um, the men of God that Knox wanted them to be. So obviously, Knox's brand of of the reformed faith was was more more reformed than the the sort of soft Protestant. Or semi-Catholic um, situation in the Anglican Church, and it—you know—the two countries were not were not aligned religiously, although they became much more aligned politically in, in Knox's lifetime. And his his vision of the church is what inspired Scotland, or certainly the Lowlands of Scotland, for you know several hundred years, and hugely influenced the the branch of Protestantism that, that moved to America. Interesting.
0: So. so- can you tell me, um yeah, I'm really interested in his sort of um what he's really famous for with his um effect on sort of the legacy of mary um yeah. in England can you you know bloody Mary comes i think largely yes from I, him. That,
1: that, it, it, well from him and and fox and his book of martyrs but fox fox and Knox there's fox Knox and Cox fox and Knox were friends. And yes, yeah, so so Knox's um, vision or his his description of Mary as a Jezebel and a, a both Mary's in fact anybody called Mary really he, he seemed to have problems with so Mary of England you know she was a Jezebel she was an idolater she was uh, she was a traitor to her country by marrying the king of Spain um one of the reasons he was uh, actually dismissed from Frankfurt in fact was his diatribes against uh Mary of England of course upset the Emperor Charles who was her father-in-law and Frankfurt was in in his territories so he that was, that was one of the reasons he had to leave frankfurt so this became and you know i'm in in no way um saying that the the persecutions in mary's reign you know were acceptable but they were persecution happened on both sides and knox was forever preaching that idolaters ought to be put to death so so he didn't sort of disagree with it in principle but this this vision of of mary as a as a jezebel as a as a murderess as a traitor very much influenced English and and Scottish um, perceptions of Mary for well, even up to our own day most people will will refer to to Queen Mary as Bloody Mary Uh, Elizabeth, he tried to curry favour with Elizabeth by saying the first blast wasn't wasn't about her and that God had obviously called her he'd made a special exception in Elizabeth's case Right. And he thought that Elizabeth would be pleased by this. And he sent a message via Sissel to Elizabeth saying as as if, if Elizabeth just admitted that she was a special case, he would be very, very happy to um, live in England under her rule and, you know, her godly rule and so forth but if she thought that she actually had a a right of birth to be a queen then that was completely unacceptable mm. and you know she she would she would be damned for for that notion it was only because she was a, a special exception and uh, elizabeth wasn't very impressed by that one uh, similarly uh, when mary of scotland complained that about the first blast he said that um he would be as happy to live under Mary of Scotland if the public of Scotland accepted her as St. Paul had lived under the Emperor Nero, which again was not the kind of thing that Queen Mary expected one of her um, subjects to say to her. So but he he seemed to be completely um, tone deaf. He could not understand why uh, Elizabeth and Mary of Scotland Disliked him Mm -hmm. or felt threatened by his (sighs) statements. He felt that he was doing God's work, and if their hearts were open to God, they would understand that he was admonishing them for their own good. Mm -hmm. Yes, a level of egotism that's quite right. Hard to astonishing. (laughs) (laughs) He does seem to have conflated insults against himself with insults against God. He couldn't seem to see the difference between the two. But yes, so he he his effect on the reputations of both mary of england and mary of scotland have been extremely negative uh yes it'd be a long time before they get over them
0: <laughs> and how did like how did his relationship with elizabeth change um you know how did that evolve i know she wasn't too happy about his comments as well do, do you have any evidence on kind of she how
1: that... ab- yeah she absolutely refused to allow him into england uh when the Lords of the Congregation wanted money from England and Knox was sent secretly to England to, to try to um, persuade the English government to, to, hand, to, to support them, Cecil said that on no account was Knox's name to be mentioned to the Queen because he was so odious to her that the, the very mention of his name would would prevent her um, helping the Lords of the Congregation. And she never, she never changed that opinion. She wouldn't allow him in the country and she, she considered him odious. And yeah, uh, when after the death of Darnley, when he was preaching virulently against Mary in Edinburgh, Elizabeth's ambassador, Randolph, actually, uh, sorry, Throckmorton was given instructions to tell him to tone it down, but he, he refused. So what is his, I know you talked a little bit about it, but just
0: what what would you say his legacy is then and, and why is he important?
1: I think he he's important because he he His vision of the reformed faith was what took hold in Scotland, which I suppose getting out of our period probably quite strongly affected the the civil war of the next century because of the different the different Protestant faiths within within the british isles, the 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 more radical Calvinist Presbyterian world of of James Knox versus the the Anglican tradition of uh, King Charles and, and archbishop lord Th- those two were never going to be reconcilable so i think that that was one of the underlying te- tensions in the in the civil war and i think also his his more more reformed faith informed those who who went to america much more so the the, the puritan the puritan wing of the english church was much more in line with um Knox's view than the the Catholic wing of the Anglican Church. So, he, so I would say his influence was was huge in Scotland and in in America. Interesting,
0: yeah. I I think there's a there's a college named after him in Oregon, or maybe it's John oh. Fox. I get them confused, but um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. So, where can people uh, find out more
1: about him? There's a couple of very good biographies about him. One by Jane Dawson. Which is the latest biography and uses some information that's only recently been discovered about letters relating to um, the period in Frankfurt. Then there's another one which is actually they're, um, slightly different in tone, but possibly a bit more human interest in, is by Rosalind Miles. They're both called John Knox because there's nothing else you can call him really. And the one by Rosalind Miles actually gives very interesting insight into into his his personal characteristics, a very much more emotional man than than perhaps we think of, you know, uh, the affection for his family and his children and his, he's his, 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 his very, very emotional. You know, you tend to think of him as this uh, sort of strident rock, but actually he, he was very, um, very emotionally driven and, and probably that's what made him so charismatic. So there's those two. Um, obviously we'll be having something on Tudor Times um, by the time this goes up. Then there are he he's he's a bit player in all of the other histories of of Scotland. Most most books on Mary Queen of Scots, you know, tend to see him as the as the villain of the piece. I and mean, his own book, The History of the Reformation in Scotland, uh, runaway bestseller, um, is you know obviously an important record of the time, um, although clearly written from his his perspective.
0: All right. Any final thoughts of him? Any parting words?
1: Yeah, I'm, I, I I struggle to like the man. Um, he he's so different from our our perceptions now. His attitude to, towards women and towards rulers and towards anybody with a different vision of the truth are just so difficult for us to to understand. That it is hard to warm to him. But he was a man of integrity, and you know he 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 did believe what he said. Thank you again to Melita Thomas for taking the time to tell us about John Knox.
0: For more information on him, go to tutortimes.co.uk, or see the resources available on the EnglandCast site at EnglandCast.com. We've also got the transcript for this episode up at EnglandCast.com, so check that out. Next week, I've got an episode on Tudor crime coming up, so stay tuned for that. Talk with you soon. Bye-bye.
1: Blow northern wind, scentful be sweating. Blow northern wind, blow, blow, blow.
0: Ich hot a bord in Bauerbricht, that soul is semi sonsi,
1: Men's full mind of meet fair and fray to fonder In all this warfish a one a board of blood and of bone, never yet in Ustenone, known, also met in
0: London.